I'm Vince. I'm R2. We're two middle-aged guys from the Midwest with opinions on RPGs. Let's get into it. We're going to ruin your games. Oh. Hey, R2. Sorry I'm late to record this. There was a real backup at the portal this morning when I was trying to get here to record this. Uh, too many hands on the key? Too many hands on the key. That's exactly right. Today... We're going to be talking about truly my favorite campaign setting of all time. I want to say there were 14 options on the table of campaign settings, and the randomizer today took us exactly where I wanted, to Planescape. Planescape. Uh, finally coming back, we're recording this not too long after the announcement. It's, it's been a couple months, but not super long, since they finally announced, for the first time since second edition, effectively... Uh, we're going to get real, authentic support for Planescape in 2023. And R2, <sighs> I am excited. As well you should be. Yeah. Hopefully we get uh, better than a roughly 100-page player document in a three-book set. <laughs> One can only hope. Okay, for the uninitiated R2, would you like to give an overview of Planescape? Planescape is everything yeah it's everything in the kitchen sink mm -hmm. it's deep philosophical questions about the nature of the the world that we play these games in about the nature of of free will of existence it's high adventure high magic it's it's got everything for something for everybody and everything for some people yes i think that a lot of people are so planescape originally uh came out as sort of a replacement to Spelljammer, kind of another take on that similar concept of world hopping. It utilized the the Great Wheel, the cosmology of D&D. These are many of the places you adventure and visit. So the various alignment-oriented planes and then their connective tissue in the elemental and quasi-elemental planes and those kinds of things. The astral plane and things of that nature. And now we've added to those with things like the Fey and the uh shadow fell and yeah that kind of stuff but it's effectively everywhere that isn't the normal world right mechanically it's all of these interconnected worlds and portals to that that bring them all together each of them being very distilled into a single philosophical concept and philosophy you know i obviously i philosophy was my major in college it's a huge part of my life and Planescape is inexorably tied to philosophy, the original creators of it. All of the sort of, in the world, there are core factions that operate out of the central city, Sigil. And each of them has a philosophy that in some way mirrors or it takes to the extreme or is an homage to some kind of real world philosophy. The planes themselves are philosophical and that they're, you know, often bound to an alignment or to a pure element that makes up the the cosmos or something like that. And they they pull you towards their point of view simply by being there, right? And one of the things you said uh, right before we recorded, I think is absolutely right. People from this place have seen it all before and they are not impressed with you. Very true. Right. Sigil, which is the, the sort of central hub city through which Planescape adventures are happening, is an inverted donut-shaped... Taurus, a Taurus ring, uh, sitting atop an infinitely tall spire yes. in the central 
dead magic zone of the Great Wheel cosmological concept. Yeah, in the middle of the sort of inner planes, wherein, yes, as you get closer to the center, more and more magic shuts off. You finally come to the total dead magic area where there's an infinitely tall tower. And at the top of the infinitely tall tower is this this impossible city, right? Huge beyond reckoning, but also completely traversable, full of a the most cosmopolitan selection of beings from across the universe or across the multiverse yes indeed and all these different power centers and to me that is what planescape got right first okay now we should state the factions were potentially this is more myth than i think truth at least i don't i've never seen the the factual proof of this only people's suppositions the factions were an edict from editorial that D&D needed something to match Vampire the Masquerade's clans, okay? Because Vampire the Masquerade had come out around the same time, a little before that, and was very popular. Yeah, the the, the White Wolf uh, storytelling system uh, games had blown up the tabletop role-playing space. So what certainly Vampire did and what, the, what Planescape got right in terms of D&D was... It's much more interesting in a world when there are multiple competing power centers, all vying for supremacy, none winning out. If you think of the traditional early D&D power structure, and we talked about it last episode in the sort of Eurocentric fantasy, right? It's very top-down. It's very top-down. This sort of standard hierarchy. You've got adventurers. You're walking through a... You're Just picture your adventurers walking through a countryside. That countryside belongs to someone, right? There is some lord who owns that land, who's up to a king who owns the whole nation, or, or something like that, right? Or an emperor, or whatever. Yeah. And that that is the defined power structure. Everything, like a pyramid, goes up to the top. Everybody answers to somebody, and when you get to the king, he at least says he answers to gods. Right. And yeah, you might have like a couple different small power centers like, oh, there's a really powerful but reclusive wizard and or, or the, the church is also pretty powerful but separate, right? Or whatever. It's not that those things didn't exist. But they were very inequitously weighted, right? You know, the the church had responsibility of the faith and religion and the but the yeah. law was the king and so on and so forth, right? Whereas here In Sigil, yeah. All of the factions want complete control. Yes. And none of them have even a majority of control. Yeah. Uh, you've got different factions uh, performing, uh, just by nature of their philosophical outlook and their desires, different functions within the city. Yep. You have the Fraternity of Order, which is a faction dedicated to cataloging and understanding the rules of the universe yep. with the the expectation that once we have a comprehensive list of all the rules that govern the universe that we will then have complete control over yep. the universe if you understand something you control it yes and we will transcend because of that right yeah absolutely we will just like achieve a higher mode of power and thought yeah. yes and so the fraternity of order turns into the bureaucratic cogs the, the the wheels spinning behind the scenes keeping the administration of the city's bureaucracy moving smoothly yep or not so smoothly depending on individual influence sure so you have these powerful but it goes beyond just the factions you're right all of the factions play against each other you have sigil being ruled over by this sort of laissez-faire yep. ultimate power leader the lady of pain there is some top down 
in Sigil. The Lady of Pain, who is an undefinable, unknowable being that simply is. Right. And goes around Sigil and does whatever she pleases, doesn't have any interest in running any sort of government. No. And and, and as a point of fact, nor faith forbades worship of her, right? Yes. And will kill you if you worship her. She's pretty straightforward on that. Yeah. Very clear that she is not a god and does not wish to be worshipped as a god. Also doesn't want to be the head of state or any government. Right. But if you do something that displeases her, she will annihilate you. Right. Now... Those factions all play against each other, but they're not the only power centers. You have the normal stuff you would expect. You have, you know, this is a city where powerful demons and angels walk side by side from the celestial realms and from the the hells and and so on and so forth. There are crime bosses and and all those kinds of things. But when you expand out beyond the walls of Sigil, you have, this is literally the home of the gods, right? The gods here are nothing that special. I mean, they're very powerful. And in fact, there's a whole faction multiple factions revolving around exactly what is the nature of the gods and how do we view them and are they at all important but you can just wander into their territory and meet them like that is a fully realizable thing to do they are a power center out here right there are hierarchies up and down these various planes once you get like outside of the homes of the gods uh you know elemental lords and rulers and and so on and so forth right and the thing that ties all of these wildly distant and disparate things is the nature of Sigil. Sigil, not only is this weird donut on top of an infinity spire, it's also the city of doors. Yes. The reason why it's so cosmopolitan, why it has such a varied, jaded, cynical population is because they have doors and portals that go everywhere. Every world, every place, every plane, everywhere. And that results in the people of Sigil being very jaded and having this seen-it-all-done-it-all attitude. But also, it brings the fantastic unreality of the situation to the fore in, in a way yeah. that I find fantastic. Yes, they. it's all played completely straight. What I mean by that is... You will walk into a bar in the lower ward, and yes, it is run by a pit fiend or something. He is the bar owner. That is just what he does. And yes, he runs a crime empire secretly out of this. And he is constantly being opposed and, and harassed by the hardheads, right? By the Harmonium, who are trying to, to bust up his operation or something. And then outside his bar... Growing on the side of the building is some sentient strangle vine that if you wander too near will kill you. And then also there are pools of black ink or black tar type of stuff, you know, oozy pools that are just in the street in the lower ward. That one in every 20 is actually a portal to the plane of ooze and will reach out and grab you and suck you in. Right. And that's just a normal Tuesday. Yeah. That's not none of that is weird to you. Right. It is the it is the jaded New Yorker on level 11 right like times a thousand everything about planescape is just is turned up to 11 and then played straight and i can't get enough yeah i agree and we should talk a little about you know we mentioned all these different power centers and all the different planes and this is something i mean i own more or less all of the box sets from this time period for this stuff because i love it i just want to talk for a moment about how much we owe to this world for things that we now consider quite commonplace 
What I mean by that is things like Tieflings and the interest in Tieflings uh, very much have its roots within Planescape. So a lot of the, the sort of magic and the conception of the planes as they are, as they were refined, that a lot of that happened in those Planescape books and box sets and stuff like that. Of course, my favorite race of all time, which I assume will be in the Planescape book. Yeah, Glitchling. <laughs> Modron. Modron are the greatest thing ever created, uh, as we all know. Now, they weren't created for Planescape. They, were, they existed independently before that. But they were really brought to the fore in Planescape. And that's where the incredible art of Planescape came to the fore and gave them life and character and so many creatures really came out of that period. We don't have enough time on this podcast to discuss the amazing art right. in these old Planescape books. When when this 5th edition Planescape book comes out, if they don't get that artist back... To Which do, I'm going to screw up his name. It's like Tony DeTier Lizzy or something like that. I, I don't know how to say his name. If they don't get him back to do more original art for Planescape, huge miss. Huge miss. Uh, that art is so it's intrinsically tied to what Planescape is, at least in my mind. No, it's it's Larry Elmore in Dragonlance. Yeah. Right? Uh, like, when I think of the Dragonlance characters, I think of his art. His imagining of what Raceland and Karaman and, and all of those characters look like are those images. And in much the same way, Tony is just intrinsically tied to Planescape and how I view it. And you can feel the difference in the later books. Not they, they had other artists come in. And they're very talented people. I don't want to demean their work, right? But there was just a difference. It'd be like it'd be like if somebody else started drawing Berserk. I, I just wouldn't. I, no, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Like it was a it was such a singular vision, right? Yeah. And when we've when we've touched back in in later editions on Planescape and in, in third edition, fourth edition. The small amount of art that was there just didn't... It, it wasn't quite there. Yeah. Always felt like a shell of it for its former self. Like, they didn't know what to do with it. When, in fact, what to do with it is so obvious. And that's... I'm excited for it to come back now because I think the game's finally in a place where we can actually capitalize on and realize the promise of that setting in a way we never could before. Because it was never set up to play... Like a traditional D&D game, we're going to be adventurers, we wander the countryside and right wrongs. No, there is no countryside. Right. <laughs> right. That's, a, that's problem number one. Yes. Like, it always needed a different feel, a different thrust. It was always more political, more social, more exploratory, right? So if the three pillars of D&D are combat, social, and exploration, it always pulled on those other two in ways that that D&D just really wasn't ready for, I think, before now, um, outside of, like, individual playgroups who knew how to really capitalize on and, and lean into that. When you walk into the bar and it's being run by a pit fiend, getting in a bar fight is no longer an option. That is not small stakes fun. Right. You know, it takes the whole retired adventurer who opened up a bar to quite a new level, Right. And so the social, the exploratory matters a lot. So we should talk about the types of games that we think are, are Planescape games. What What is the way that you structure a game in Planescape? For me, I usually break down Planescape games into one of two types. Okay. Either you're using, planes, you're using Planescape and, and specifically the city of Sigil as a convenient hub through which you tell 
a sprawling plane hopping adventure you're going from this plane to this plane to this plane and coming up with some cosmic MacGuffin. the the, the stakes are incredibly high you're operating at a universal scale yep. and sigil is the hub location that allows this sort of story to happen quickly and naturally and sigil only in those type of stories only really gets used in backstory or for occasional interludes or figuring out how you're getting from one plane to another you have to find the portal right because because you don't need to be super high level and have plane shifts and teleports and stuff like that to get around you can rely on the existing portals that are there since there's just an unknowable thousands and thousands of portals in the city that go everywhere as long as you've got the right key that just that instantly becomes easy fodder to get even low level players involved in the story where they're going through portals going to distant and strange places and and having these you know incredible encounters with fantastical creatures yeah and that to to put it in terms of like media uh, that that you might be familiar with if spelljammer is is star trek Mm -hmm. this sort of planescape game is like sliders or stargate sg1 sure where no day is is like the last you're moving from different environment to different environment constantly exploring not on like not a hex grid of countryside but you're exploring these places that are the the metaphysical underpinnings of the whole universe right right you might be in mechanis one day trying to like logic puzzle your way through how to interact with the modern to retrieve some particular cog that you need that they don't want to come off of right and then the next day you might be fighting your way through the blood fields of uh of Bator, right in the middle of the blood war and then the day after that you're chopping your way through a hazardous and exploratory like uh, through a through a hazardous and dangerous uh jungle in uh like the the uh, the plane of beasts or whatever right just trying to to cut your way through something and get to truth and need to negotiate with the talking animals that live there or whatever it could be anything and that story I really love running stories like that. Mm -hmm. I I love operating at that that huge scale. I think that that type of of setting gives you a lot of opportunity to have really like awe-inspiring moments where you can can really just go ham on descriptions of insane things happening. Right. And like when when people are are fighting a battle on a moving massive island-sized cog against robotic entities that exist to prevent immortality like these are just it's just cool yeah and you've run several campaigns marathon type games we run in planescape you've utilized it for you did a sort of around the world in 80 days riff but it was you know sort of around the plains you did a uh, a game where we were hunting for a sort of impossible spaceship Right, uh, where we were competing against other factions, trying to find this like mysterious, ancient, and powerful lost, effectively like time traveling ship, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, you know, the, like it, it, those types of games are exactly what you're describing. But it's certainly not the only one, because I think some people might find that a bit intimidating, or at the very least, maybe like whip, causing some whiplash. Yeah, the danger of that type of story is that operating at that type of scale and scope over a full campaign is exhausting yeah and you're running the risk of 
emptying your your player's capacity for wonder. Yeah, sure. There's also the fact that because they don't stick in any place except the hub sigil for any amount of time, they don't really get to know anybody and everything just becomes guests of the week they never get attached to, right? Yeah. And that brings us to the second main type of Planescape game, which is the sigil-centric game. Mm. You have a group of people that are either from the city or, or otherwise invested in the City of Doors. And that's where the majority of the action takes place. That's where the antagonists are. That's where you are. Other than occasional interludes to leave and go get things you need from outside, right? the story's happening here, yep. inside the cage. Yep. And... It's and as we've already talked about, it's big enough, it's complex enough, there's enough power centers, there's enough parties, there's enough places of interest. I mean, to be clear, the city has its own slang and dialogue, uh, both real and fake. It's got enough established vernacular that there is an entire fake vernacular that the Knight of the Posts used to trick people to get them in trouble so they can rob them, right? Yeah. So it is, again, because it's New York or Tokyo or, or you know, some huge city like that, uh, Mumbai or something, you know, ramped up to a thousand. Super Singapore. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can easily live your whole life there and have a copious amount of differing adventures, and it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's a perfectly great place to set a city. And I think, that, I think more than the plane hopping game, the, the Sigil-centric game gets into the real meat of what makes Planescape special with these faction conflicts, with getting into the, the philosophical differences at war in the city and the, the stories that spin out of that. That's the real magic of Planescape. Yeah. And then from either of those two very broad concepts, you can sort of sub-slice those pizzas and pull out an individual, an individual slice. And what I mean by that is, like, you could have a War in Heaven campaign where, you know, Arcadia or one of the sort of celestial planes is having some unprecedented conflict, right? And your main focus is on those particular slice of planes. And, you know, maybe you operate out of Sigil and those planes and you only touch on a few others. You know, so you can almost, if you picture it, the wheel, the great wheel, as literally a big pizza pie... (laughs) Right, you can imagine almost just taking a slice and saying, "Okay, this is going to be our major focus. We're going to spend eighty percent of our time here." The one of the most classic, famous campaigns that came out of this world is called the Great Modern March, and it's very much the first type you're talking about, where the the moderns who classically go on this like insane march once every ten thousand yeah so x years. amount of time, where they literally walk their way around all of the the planes, all of the outer planes, which is insane because all of the planes are infinite and yet not. The they they walk around early and unexpectedly and then they're just like trampling on things and getting in fights and it just causes all this weird cataclysmic knock on destruction. And you kind of follow them along through there while also simultaneously trying to operate and figure out what's happening and uncovering other yeah. mysteries and stuff. Why are these modern marching early? They, they are the embodiment of order and schedule. Like, what what is what has gone wrong here? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you can pull the individual slice. You can do, like, this is the blood war 
game. You're not going to just fight the Blood War for 20 levels. The Blood War being the the war between the forces of, of Bator and, and uh, the, the Abyss. Abyss. Yeah, so lawful evil against chaotic evil, right? You know, I, I think that's fine. You could you could use that as a completely valid kickoff, and like that's going to be the major area of our focus. So you don't you don't have to feel. I think it can feel overwhelming because there is so much. But you don't have to eat the whole pizza at once. You don't have to fold up the whole pizza and try to shove it in your face. You you can pull a slice out. It's cool. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, the last thing I want to say here as we're as we're coming toward a conclusion. I mean, great race, great like great imaginative races and species and monsters and art. Great places, great powers, great people, great philosophy, extremely motivating and compelling characters. I mean, we could we could spend the next hour just talking about all the weird NPCs and characters who exist in this world and who are sort of established lore, yeah. who are all unbelievably deep and compelling folks. Rule of three. Rule of three, absolutely. Yeah, there's 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 one right up top. But in addition to all of that, I do think I want to like sort of leave my hope here, which is if you're going to use it before the book comes out, which is perfectly fine, you, if you can lay your hands on all the old material, it's all that old material, by the way, is available in PDF from, I think, drive through RPG, like super cheap. Yeah. But, and just as a quick aside, if you got that new Spelljammer box set and you want a little bit more material, the PDFs for the old second ed stuff are like five bucks each. Yeah. Yeah. Just exactly. go buy it. Yeah. So that's the easy way to lay your hands on that stuff. But, at the end of second edition, they did this super dumb thing. They knew it was coming to a close, and they were trying to do all these big moves. So they did this thing called the Faction War, where they effectively killed all the factions. Yeah, they, they, they had this adventure, this story, where one of the factions uh, saw an opportunity to take complete control and enacted this, this master plan, threw Sigil into chaos, and all the factions just fell on each other. Uh, the city was in chaos. Order fell to nothing and the adventuring party was was pivotal in, in the center of it all yeah and at the end of that story the lady of pain shows up and ends it because that's what she does there is no force to oppose the lady of pain right you, you can't take control of the city from her you can only exist at her whim right and so the the plan failed she annihilates the the, the perpetrators of the plot and then abolishes the factions right the main strength the best part of planescape yep and when they brought it back later it's like in fourth edition they had sort of these dangler factions that were kind of like oh these are the the six new things that are kind of halfies of the ones before or combinations of the one before and i'm just like and they were terrible and they were terrible because they didn't have that deep rooted philosophy that underpinned the original ones. I'm not saying you couldn't make more. I'm saying that whoever tried to make more was not up to the task. I yeah. apologize. That they were creating practical organizations to serve functions within the city, not developing an ethical viewpoint and then making a faction based around it. Exactly. I'm not interested in whether or not you can write me a compelling paradigm for the UAW existing. I know the UAW can exist. I don't have a desire to role play a member of the UAW. Right. What's compelling is when there is a, a a philosophy that is literally how you think about life, the universe and everything. Right. And then around that, a group of like minded people form. Right. And so I just hope they dispense with the entire faction war nonsense and just say, like, either it didn't happen or they're just like, and they just hand wave it like they've done for most other things. Yeah, like they did with the Forgotten Realms at the yeah. start of Fifth Ed. Yeah. Where we just hand waved away the dumb stuff and yeah. got to what's good. Yeah, it's OK. Yeah, we, we can. 
admit that these things that were done were mistakes and go back to what was good. It's all we need to do here. Last thing I want to say. Yeah. If you want to run a Planescape game, read the books, get into the material, and also read a little Douglas Adams. Yeah. That's the feel. Absolutely. That's a really good call. Yes. Douglas Adams, there is sort of this, everything's played straight, but there's also a lampshade very much hanging on it, right? It's straight, but not serious. Yeah. This is the Hitchhiker's Guide to D&D. Yeah. And that's why I love it, because it is wacky, but cataclysmic. It's super high magic, but also just completely mundane, all mixed in together, right? A thousand people's point of view and no one's right. It's, it's the cacophony. It's beautiful. It really is. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to uh, rate and review on whatever podcast service you have to be listening on. We really appreciate that. You know, hit it with five stars or 72 weasel blats or whatever it happens to be on your particular podcast service. Don't forget, if you've got questions or have suggestions for future topics, you can drop those into the email that's down in the description. Uh, we always are happy to see new quests for topics and questions and communication from you out there. So thank you very much. If you want to learn more, don't forget I've got a, a YouTube channel uh, over there that focuses on Warhammer, uh, where we get into all sorts of stuff as well as the hobby and miniature painting in general. You can find that under my name under Vince Venturella. Uh, but anyways, thanks for listening to this, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.